0: I'm thrilled to get to the topic of today and to speak with David and Anne. And I'm just gonna briefly introduce you because I really wanna leave time to dig into the, the work you found. David Montgomery is a MacArthur Fellow and professor of geomorphology at the University of Washington. And Anne is a science writer and public speaker focusing on the connections between people, plants, food, health, and the environment. And their work done a lot of work but the work in particular that we're focusing on today includes a trilogy of books about soil health microbiomes and agriculture and these books the first one which they wrote over a a little over a decade ago was dirt that was followed by the hidden half of nature and then what your food ate which will be available on june 21st but i luckily um, was able to read an advanced copy and um, I hope to finish this book, but unlike a lot of books on soil, um, I want to read every, every line because what a lot of things strike me, but one, I'll say a few of them, one is the way you combine the specificness of what's happening with the phytochemicals in the soil and then the why those specifics matter. So, you know, I've been composting for years and mulching for years, but your book is helping me understand that why that matters in such specific terms. um, That makes me wanna do more and inspires me to go further. So that was one thing that really strikes me. Another is the way you talk about both the content but the relationship between how we frame what we're measuring and what we see and the way by bringing in all these different voices from an incredible amount of research, both your own research and then book research, um how you show that maybe we haven't been measuring the right things quite often we're not measuring the right things but there have been people through history that have been and bringing those voices in Um, so those two points that i want to mention and then the third is the big picture of why it matters and halfway through you have a quotation by andy warhol that actually brought tears to my eyes Having land and not ruining it is the most beautiful art. And it brought tears to my eyes because of how much we've ruined the land. And in your book, you outline all the ways that we have and all the ways we cannot ruin it, regenerate it. So with that brief little introduction and highly recommending everybody to read this book and purchase it as soon as it's available, June 21st, um, I wanted to start with another quotation um, George Washington Carver, that another one you include, and it says, education is understanding relationships. And so to start, I wonder if you all could just talk about all your work is about these relationships between soil, crops, livestock, and humans. So if you can jump in and talk about why that matters.
1: All right, well, uh, thank you. It's, it's a pleasure to be here um, talking with you about that and about relationships. Um, and I uh, you know, I think that the the real sort of bottom line on the research that we came out that came out through the book to us was that you know what we do, the land, we do to ourselves, that the, the health of the land translates into the health of people. And we that, that there's a lot of dots in between to try and look at. And it's all about the relationships between the life in the soil and the health and the growth of crops, that what's in crops and the health and the growth of livestock, what's in the food that comes from crops and livestock that, that, that we then eat, then eat, what that does with our microbiome and how the, 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 uh, the metabolites that they produce and the other things that get from our food that are affected by what happens on farms end up influencing our health. And there's a whole lot of relationships in between, um, but it's under, you, you have to understand them and understand them in context to really be able to explain the why between the you know why it matters about how we treat the land, how we treat soil on our farms and what that does to help tee up our bodies to actually help defend ourselves and maintain our health over, over, over a lifetime. So that's why we broke it into those connections of looking at how farming practices affect soil health how soil health affects crop health, how crop health affects livestock health and how the, the latter two of those end up affecting human health. Um, and, it really is all about relationships.
2: Yeah, I think um, sort of if you had asked me, you know, a decade ago, oh, you guys can be, you know, looking into what your food ate, I would have looked at you and said, what kind of nutty talk are you talking? And then, and then the book Dirt opened this all up. That was largely an effort of Dave's to just, and he even sort of, that book started out a little little bit differently than it ended in that he ended up writing a history of farming. And that's not what he thought it would be. But for anyone out there who's written a book or maybe even an essay, you kind of start out at the beginning with one thing in mind. And there you are at the end and and you go, oh, this is interesting. I didn't really think I'd end up here, but, uh, but here we are. And then with the hidden half, that really laid open a lot of the new science on microbiomes, both that book focuses on both microbiomes of the human body and microbiomes of the plant body and the soil. And that for me was the point at which it opened my eyes to, oh, if there's all of these relationships going on in the human body and in the soil, this is a really big part of health and well-being way more than I had ever thought and as a result of writing and researching that book, you'd mentioned um, some you'd mentioned when you started and you know some specifics and that was something you liked about what your food ate because you start learning about you know it's the biology and the chemistry and all of these things that sort of mesh together to make things work and that's uh, it's really important <laughs> that those things are able to be happening. And, and so then Dave wrote a, a, another book called Growing a Revolution, and this was visiting farmers around the world who had been pioneering some of these regenerative techniques. In fact, I like to kind of put the two titles together and say, yeah, we're growing a revolution with the hidden half of nature to learn about you know, why you are what your food ate. So that's kind of a long string. And the big cap on that is because our soil is in trouble and especially the soil um, beneath our farms and our gardens where we're growing all of the plant foods that become a part of the human diet, all of the plant foods that become a part of, you know, an animal's diet as well. So um, it's been a long journey and you might've thought, people might have thought, gee, you guys should have started with this book, but we didn't know. We didn't know about all of these relationships to the degree and the depth that we do now that I think really puts what your food ate as the capstone. I mean, it matters a lot, what our food ate, and you know, I'll I'll leave it kind of at that for now. We can get into some more things maybe in a bit.
1: Yeah, and the 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 one sort of additional thing I'll add to that is back and to your point about you know the the why and that being so important to understanding, and that's really where I think uh, understanding um, the why re- lies in the relationships that people have to all those previous pieces in that chain from the soil uh, to our food.
0: Yeah. So maybe go ahead and dive into the research. What did you find? Both the, the, the research you all did, maybe describe that. The farms you compared. But...
1: Yeah. So basically, what we did, we we started by doing you know the typical kind of academic research of looking at well, what have other people found already? Because then we don't have to do it. Um, we can we can we can synthesize it and talk about it and think about it. Um, and in doing that, we ran into a whole lot of work along each of those sort of change of the way from soil to crops to livestock to people. Um, where studies had looked at sort of a single piece. Um, and there was a lot of good evidence that, you know, certain kinds of compounds, uh, micronutrients, phytochemicals, um, and that the particular mix of fats that are in meat and dairy products end up mattering to human health. And if you kind of work backwards from that, uh, there's pretty good evidence that agronomic practices can influence those things um, in, some, in some cases. Um, but that the connection to, from soil health as an influence on that was one where there hadn't been as as much emphasis in the the scientific literature as we would like to find. Um, So what we tried to do, uh, you know, after reviewing all that and sort of teeing up that, oh, these are the kind of things you might expect agronomic practices to have a a, a big influence on. um, We teed up a a small scale sort of exploratory study where we looked at, uh, it was 10 paired farms across the United States where we had a regenerative farm uh, some of which were drawn from the farms that I visited, right, in Growing a Revolution, where we knew of regenerative farmers who had really done an amazing job at bringing their soil back to life, increasing soil organic matter, and increasing the health of, of their land. And we wanted to compare crops they grew to crops grown on conventional farms, you know, either right next door or in proximity to their farms in comparable soils with a comparable climate in the same year, growing the same crop variety. So we, we set up this sort of limited field trial, if you will, um, with these, with the, with, a, with successful regenerative farmers and compared, uh, they each grew a crop that uh, was the same variety that their neighbor was growing. Uh, we tested their soil um, for organic matter and with the Haney test, a test of soil health that really sort of um, measures microbial activity in the soil as, as just the simplest measures you could make of soil health, not comprehensive. Um, and then we compared that we sent the, resulting pro- the, the crops off to a, a food lab uh, to basically get them tested to see what was in it in terms of mineral micronutrients, minerals, um, uh, certain vitamins, um, uh, a suite of phytochemicals, total phytosterols, total uh, um, polyphenols, and total carotenoids. Um, and we compared the ratios between those paired farms. And we looked at ratios because you wouldn't look at the absolute values of things because you know a carrot grown in Connecticut is in very different soil than one grown in Iowa, for example. Um, so you'd look at ratios of the conventional versus regenerative, and what we basically found is that all the regenerative farms had higher soil organic matter and better soil health, um, and it ranged from you know just a little bit better up to I think something like three times as much. I think it was
2: one of one with, was four. The soil health score was at four times. Yeah, one of the
1: soil. Yeah, some of the soil health scores are four or five mm-hmm. times higher. Um, and the two no-till vegetable farms that we visited had sort of the highest soil organic matter contents and some of the larger farms and had up to three times relative to their conventional neighbors and the sort of larger farms doing sort of more, more typical large-scale american agriculture uh folk featuring focusing on grain some corn some soybeans uh sorghum there's some other crops that were involved in, in the comparisons they had uh uh, soil organic matter contents up on average of uh, between uh, comparable to, to up to twice as much so the soil seemed to be you know had more organic matter was healthier soil uh, and in terms of what we found in terms of the um the produce and has a set of notes right in front of her.
2: <laughs> yeah so averaged across all these farms uh you know so i want to be clear it wasn't you know just one farm but we we averaged... yeah, there's a lot
1: of variability
2: yeah that it, there's some, we were talking with somebody the other day and they said, what did you find most surprising about you know, the study and research that you did? And, and it was, there was, things were highly variable. And at first it was sort of like, huh, is this, is this a problem? Or what does all this variability mean? And um, when you think about it, the variability is really pretty normal. Every single one of us as human being we're all quite variable, We've, you know, we're living in different habitats, we're living on different diets, our genomes are different and so on. So it really wasn't that surprising. And coming up a level from all that variability, what we found when we averaged everything across the farms is I'll just take, um, I imagine phytochemicals are of interest to the audience. And so we found that with carotenoids, for example, 15% more on the regenerative farms in their crops total phenolics, about 20% more, total phytosterols, about 22% more. And then in um, vitamins, vitamin K, vitamin K and E and a couple of B vitamins, it ranged from a high of 34% more vitamin K in the region crops to the lowest difference was 14%. And then in terms of um, a couple of minerals, calcium phosphorus and copper stuck out as being um, more in the regen crops. And we kind of have this, we have a star crop in our in our study. It's, ca- it's It was a cabbage comparison done with um, the regen vegetable farmer out of uh, California. And what was really interesting with their cabbage compared to the the regen one, theirs had, twice the phenolics, twice the phytosterols, and 48% more carotenoids. And if you'd ever been to this farm, it's called Singing Frogs Farm, and you take a look at it, it just, there's something going on there. They
1: have beautiful soil.
2: Yeah, beautiful soil, beautiful crops. Unfortunately, our Connecticut farmer, which is, folks may know of him, it's Brian O'Hara on Tobacco Road Farm, and he's got an equally stunning farm with amazing soil and crops. We were not able, unfortunately, to find a comparison crop to um, include with Brian's farm. So we just uh, did soil health analyses for, um, for his soils. And I did mention variability, and there were a couple of, there was um, two areas where the regen crops actually had um, less of things. One was a B vitamin, B6, and then also manganese. And um, folks may be interested to know, okay, well, what exactly were these crops? Um, It was the cabbage, of course. Um, Cabbage and peas would be sort of our our vegetables. And then we had corn, soy, and um, sorghum. We were also able with uh, the vegetable farmers, we found some other data uh, out of the USDA nutrient database and also a study that had been done in, comparing produce from a New York supermarket. And so conventional produce, conventional produce from a New York supermarket. And of course, all of the stuff in the USDA nutrient database is all conventional. And um, both uh, for that one, we compared the uh, cabbage, carrots, and spinach of the vegetable farmers. And here we were able to use some of Brian O'Hara's, I believe we did uh, spinach and carrots from him. And not too surprising. The regen veggies were just, you know, way better than everything reported in either the nutrient database or that um, New York supermarket study. So that's, you know, and I, we, um, what we did, it's a small study. It's, you know, if, if we'd been doing, you know, human biomedical research, we would have, this would have been called, you know, proof of concept. This is, this is an idea and a hypothesis that we're testing. And what it tells us is that, We need a lot more research like this to be happening because we know it's just there's scads and scads of research on say the effects of nitrogen fertilizer okay we've pretty much plumbed that topic in the research world we don't need to know a lot more about that but what we is hardly touched on at all is how agronomic practices as David been mentioning how do agronomic practices affect the things in food that are important for human health, not from a caloric standpoint, cause here in the Western world, we get plenty of calories, you know, our fats, fats, proteins, and carbs. We're getting ample amounts of those, in some cases too much. Um, but what's going on with the balance of fats in our animal foods? What's going on with the um, diversity and density of phytochemicals in our plant foods? And along those lines as well, what about you know all of these vitamins and minerals? And there's even if anyone um, out there is aware of the work of Bruce Ames, he's um, he he's a he and his group um, they're at a children's hospital in Oakland. And there's a whole class of compounds that um, there's he he calls them longevity vitamins. They're not really the vitamins that you think of when you think vitamin C or one of the B vitamins. But just put it this way: these are compounds that modulate um, basically processes in our cells that he, help keep our cells running normally, and most importantly, from sort of middle age onwards. So these are your your janitorial services, your remodelers, your clean uppers, your your tidy tidy keep you know keep the the ship running smooth, running well. Anything breaks, get on that immediately. We want no broken parts, because broken parts just keep, you know, then something else breaks and then you're stumbling along and what was a small problem becomes a big problem. So there's a whole class of compounds that we really need to be doing more agronomic research on. And I'm sure in the herbal world, you guys probably have your own uh, set of things that, that, you would really like to have research done on as well in link linking it both to medicinal effects and of course soil health.
0: Do um, I want to quick say one thing? If you have a question, um, you can drop it in the Q and A because I'm not able to follow the chat during the conversation. So put those in. We'll I'll save about ten minutes at the end for questions. Um, so the. Two different ways that I'm, my mind wants to go and I'll let you all pick one is the role of phytochemicals and why we should care why they matter in in the microbiome and then the other is how agricultural policy or how our f- framing and thinking about farming has kind of skewed you know it seems obvious soil health is leading to better plants but we have this you know yield quality versus quantity so can I do
1: the second you do the first
0: yeah, I
2: was gonna say that, that, that second question is really important because it drives the behavior of farmers and eaters. So yeah, let's hit that. And then we can just really briefly touch on the phytochemical thing.
1: Yeah, and so essentially for the last 80 years or so, we've pretty much in terms of agronomic policy and agronomic research, prioritized growing high yields of things. Um, and, and that's been done at the expense of sort of other considerations. And it's been actually quite successful in terms of its primary goal of increasing yields. Um, but as we go into in the new book, there's research dating back to the 1940s looking at how the effect of some of the practices that those, that, that effort um, normalized or standardized in terms of, you know, uh, large applications of nitrogen fertilizers, breeding crops to perform well in environments with an excess of nitrogen in the soil, um, how that essentially shortchanged um, the pathways and uh, provisioning of things like mineral micronutrients and phytochemical production in crops. And so we essentially focused, we we were so focused on high yields and and the idea of feeding the world that we kind of let slip the idea that we not only need to feed the world, but we need to nourish the world. And the sort of the recognition of that was sort of to go into like the fortification of foods with things that may have been depleted in them. And phytochemicals were the thing that was kind of forgot about or left off the list. Or left off the list in terms of a lot of concern, in part because um, you know, they are not necessary for survival. Um, but there's a lot of evidence that relates to their beneficial effects in terms of maintaining health in people. And you know, the I, in the last that same period of the last 80 years, where our farming practices and our diet changed. Uh, the nature of, of common human illness has changed as well. We got a good bead on infectious diseases up until fairly recently, given the pandemic. Um, but there's been an explosion of chronic diseases, many of which are rooted in diet and inflammation. And it turns out that mineral micronutrients, phytochemicals, the mix of fats, um, the things that agronomic practices can affect in foods, as we write about in the book, turn out to be things that are have antioxidant and anti-inflammatory capacities. Um, and so a big question is to what degree has the diminution of those compounds in our food supply as a result of how we've chosen to farm to meet the needs of yield, how much has that actually degraded um, public health in a, in a diffuse chronic kind of fashion? Uh, and one of the cases we make in the book is that we didn't really have a choice, but it, a it wasn't a simple choice between growing calories and growing nutrient-dense food. It was a choice that was made by ignoring the, the second part in the exclusion of the first, because uh, there's generally different genes that can be a, uh, um, uh, you know, manipulated through crop breeding that affect those different pathways. Um, so we kind of took our eye off the nutrient density ball for a long time, and we're arguing that it's time to put more attention back into that um, as a way to Reverse some of that.
2: Yeah, and the only thing I would add to that, I was uh, earlier in the week taking a look at um, farm bill. So the farm bill is going to be reauthorized and voted on uh, next year. So this is one of the largest pieces of federal legislation that's out there, and um, farmers are, farmers and industry and other people are, you know, talking with congressional committees and stuff right now, and what. I thought was really interesting about the um, the testimony and the discussion that I was reading is that nearly all of it was um, sort of arguing on the pinhead about the prices of uh, subsidies for various crops and you know just to kind of simplify this like. Basically, all the farmers thought that's not enough money. And then, you know, the pushback was, well, that's all the money we have. Nowhere did I see in any of this testimony or discussion um, anything even really about food. It much less about nutrient density, much less about um, public health. And of course, the other really, you know, the two really big parts of the Farm Bill are um, how much a farmers going to get? paid to grow all this stuff. So it incentivizes what Dave was just talking about. Let's grow a lot of Crop X because we're getting this price for Crop X. So the more we get, you know, the more we grow, the more money we get. The other hand, you know, it, it's um, urban populations who are lobbying for um, things, nutrition assistance, whether that's, uh, I don't know if it's called Women, Infants and Children, Anymore, the so-called WIC program and SNAP food stamps, all that kind of thing. And I sat back and I thought, "Wow, this is really interesting." We got these two giant pieces of this major legislation. On the one hand, these farmers are not talking about nutrient density and health, and yet we all know, we all know that diet plays a huge role in health. And we're talking, on the other hand, about these populations whose health is generally not that great because their diet is is not really great. And what if, what if we jiggered our crops and what farmers are growing and channeled all that stuff over to these populations that are in need of a better diet, a diet that can help prevent disease and ensure, you know, normal growth and development. So anyway, it's just all turned on its head. And this, you know, may not, this is probably not news to your, your audience, but that's another way in which um, the way that we frame things affects behaviors. I, I'm sure some people out there are familiar with Lady Eve Balfour. She was a farmer in the UK around one of Sir Albert Howard's peers. And I always, always loved her idea that we we needed to be having doctors and farmers um, in conversation and working together, you know, and her radical idea of having a soil scientist, you know, drop into hospitals and be talking about diet and food is really not so radical. Um, and the science just tells us more and more and more that diet related maladies, conditions, and diseases are preventable. And in some cases they are reversible. So um, we've got a long way to go, but I, in seeing how farmers can turn soil health around and how soil health can turn um, nutrient density around uh, it makes me an optimist about this, and I think as sick as many Americans are, they're sick of being sick. Um, that there's a way to you know push on on this idea of getting crops that are denser with the nutrients, and I re- we really need a different word than nutrients because that's been so again it's another framing. Um, and nutrients are about the things that you need for growth. They're not about the things that you need for health throughout the human lifespan and longevity. And, and even when Dave earlier had mentioned, you know, phytochemicals, we think those aren't. Um, we don't need them for survival. I th- it, actually, I think we we need them for a high quality of life. You need them for high quality of life throughout the lifespan, and that's where we, I want to throw, you know, we, there was, people may, if you read the book, which by the way is available on, on, for pre-order right now, but it's tricky in writing about nutrients because they're so framed in terms of a nutrition lens. Okay. Does a person have enough calories? So that means proteins, fats, and carbs. Rarely do they ask, does the person have enough, um, you know, ergothionine, for example, this is a, a compound made by soil organisms that gets taken in, um, by crops. And what about, you know, the, the hundreds, if not thousands of other compounds that plants deliver into the human diet that we don't even know about. Yeah. And, and actually, uh, that is kind of a a brief segue over to the other question about phytochemicals and what do they do in, in our bodies? And why do we want them in um, high levels in plants? And how does all this work? I found it really interesting that phytochemicals, of course, they're part of the plants. It's, it's the grand plan of the botanical world for defense and health, right? We know this about you know, beta-carotene helps protect from sun and, and other phytochemicals do these kinds of defensive things. But the other thing that's happening in the botanical world with phytochemicals is that these are signaling compounds it's the words and the language that they use to communicate with the soil microbiome, especially in the rhizosphere, this very close zone right around the roots. So it's, it's not just direct defense, it's also plays a huge role in communication. And so we want phytochemicals high in the human food supply because they then come into our bodies. This is fascinating. And because they're plant foods and we, Don't really, we're pretty poor at digesting um, whole plant foods. So they sail through our digestive tract, they hit the colon, the microbiome is down there, tranquil grazing pastures, you know, fermenting this stuff, breaking it down, including the phytochemicals that are bound to the different kinds of fiber and plant foods. So they're fermenting and they're transforming these phytochemicals into other compounds. And, you know, it's these microbial metabolites have their origins in phytochemicals that are turned into other things in our colon that are then put out into the rest of our body. And I think this helps explain to a certain extent there's research on phytochemicals where, you know, it's like kind of unclear at the end of an experiment or something like, well, it wasn't exactly the phytochemical in the chemical form that it came into the body. It was this other thing. And, um, and we don't, no, you know in all cases does this phytochemical get turned into this thing and that again goes back to the variability of the human microbiome and what kind of a crew you have working on your behalf down there so just wanted to slip that phytochemical thing in there because it's a it's a hugely important um, topic and with the diversity of the plant world even though the human diet is shrunk down in terms of the diversity of plant foods that we eat uh we still have a microbiome, we still got to eat, and so I'm all for having um, the microbiome be getting as many different phytochemicals as possible so that we can get our internal pharmacists you know, churning out their products.
0: Thank you. I, I want to circle back again to the farming for a second, maybe it will circle back to phytochemicals. This was also a question, but it's one I had as well about, when we spoke last week, you talked about different farmers and the farming practices and what it takes, why farmers are farming conventionally when probably they know that this, the dirt, the soil is becoming dirt and what keeps them stuck and and the ones that you met who were able to make the transition, what that, what that takes or just your thoughts about all of why people yeah. farm, what they do.
1: So I mean, one of the one of the little appreciated sort of historical realities of what brought us modern conventional farming is that the era of time, late nineteenth, early 20th century, in which uh, sort of the roots of modern agrochemical agriculture were sort of set down and then you know blossomed after the Second World War, uh, were' landing at a time when soils across Western Europe and North America had already been degraded by generations of tillage. Um, and that's what the dirt book was about was looking at how, know over the over application of tillage over the long haul had degraded soils to the point that yields were falling people were complaining about yields going down in the 19th century and chemical fertilizers nitrogen and phosphorus in particular were big big yield boosters in degraded soils and they still are big yield boosters in degraded soils but one of the problems with the over application reliance on them is that the, the over reliance on soluble forms of nitrogen fertilizer tends to short circuit the kinds of partnerships that plants that crops form with mycorrhizal fungi in the soil, and there's there's um, you know, solid reasons behind that. Um, but it also can stimulate uh, bacterial decomposition of soil organic matter, which is essentially the food that helps feed the soil microbiome, um, and so. The over reliance on on nitrogen fertilizers can boost yield in the short run, but it degrades soil um, native soil fertility in the long run. And of course, what that means is that farmers get hooked on them. The, the more you use, the more you need. And pesticides are fairly similar for similar reasons that would take longer to explain. But the um, the so part of what got us to into modern conventional agriculture is we'd already degraded our soils, and that was a stopgap to reboost yields. Um, and that and um, i oh, sorry i forgot the first the first premise i was trying to get to the premise of your question i forgot where you actually started yeah kind
2: it. of why why are farmers and oh, right. why where are they we stuck all over? wonder right why are they stuck like this why are they doing yeah. this
1: yeah and so basically farmers have gotten caught in in both that problem the sort of the more you use the more you need kind of a problem but also if you think about where farmers are um, today They don't control the price they get for their crops. They've been encouraged to specialize in just growing one or two crops, a small number of crops. Um, And they've been trained to rely on uh, agrochemical inputs and diesel, all of which is getting more and more expensive. So they've become very good at growing very few crops, which has depressed the price they get for commodity crops while their expenses have gone up. So there's a lot of farmers now who are interested in ways that you could actually cut and reduce reliance on expensive inputs. And when I was writing Growing a Revolution, I visited some of these regenerative farmers who have been pioneering methods for doing that. And they have, um, you know, what I found was that there's a, a recipe, in, in effect, a recipe of minimal disturbance, planting cover crops or keeping you know, living, plant, living roots in the soil at all you know, throughout the growing, throughout the seasons uh, and growing a diversity of crops. And that farmers who had adopted that combination of practices we're very successful at rebuilding their soil organic matter because they're, they're not disturbing soil life, they're feeding soil life, and they're feeding a diverse team of fungi and bacteria in the soils with the diversity of crops that they're growing because uh, each plant will essentially recruit particular microbial partners through, through their um, um, exchanges through their root system. Uh, and that, that system of cultivating beneficial life can bring the soil back to life, can greatly reduce the need for inputs and it can actually maintain uh, harvests. And what we, where we went with the new book is to um, look at what that does to actually what gets into food because, and it turns out that the same kind of things you would do to rebuild soil organic matter and uh, cultivate beneficial soil life are the things that you would do to try and stim- re-stimulate the, the symbiosis that actually between soil life and plant life that increase the mineral, vitamin and phytochemical content of foods. Um,
0: and so, what in the, and in the book, you do a brilliant job describing what's going on in the rhizosphere and all of that. Like, finally, started to click for me. But um, to stay, so the conventional farm farmers are those kind of that you visited that were understanding there was problems, but um, what helps them begin to take steps or.
2: Yeah. So, how do you break out of this? I mean, one of the things that has always struck me about you know reading agronomic research, um, you'll come across people talk about farming systems. Like, which farming system are we going to study in this? You know, this experiment. And what Dave was just talking about is obviously it's the that's the conventional agricultural system, and it's it's got its own recipe and it's a very predictable recipe, and it works really well if you've, if you've got soils that are um, depauperate in soil life, low in soil organic matter, and plants that are sitting there stranded without a microbiome, nobody to talk to or communicate with. If that were me, I would need crutches. I would need some kind of virtual glasses. I would need a lot of help, a lot of inputs to get around and live my life. So, as we all know, you you can get a plant to grow uh, with a lot of fertilizer and, and under those conditions. I mean, that is what we're doing with modern agriculture. I, I think farmers that have broken out of that system um, and are doing different things. Sometimes, usually, you know, if things are going well and you're making a profit. Why change your system, right? The routine more or less is working from the standpoint of the bottom line, it might not be working for human health or the planet, but it's working for your checking account. So, you know, that keeps going on. But a crisis hits, oh, like say maybe a war um, in (laughs) in which fertilizer is made by a certain country that is now, you know, withholding it. And so all of a sudden your fertilizer prices are, you know, late last year, it was maybe they were doubled. Well, if you take a poking around into the price of nitrogen fertilizer today, I mean, we're well into the growing season for certain parts of the world. And it's like, oh, three times, four times. Oh, now we can't even get it at all. I mean, this is what Brazil is facing. And this is uh, awkward. This is shocking. This is, um, this is a huge motivator for change. I liken it to, you know, any one of us who's gotten, you know, some kind of, say, a medical or health diagnosis, either you ignore it or you're like, oh, I think I'm going to change. I think it's time to change right now. And a farmer isn't going to see changes overnight. And likewise, a person isn't either if you decide you're going to do something um, in the face of information and in a crisis. But over time, and this is the neat thing about soil, um, you start returning organic matter to the soil through the recipe that Dave described, you know, to cover crops, diversity, and living roots. And the microbiome gets back up on its tiny little feet pretty darn quickly. Like anyone over a season, you know, you, you put a lot of organic matter out there, and and then you know, by the next growing season, you start to see little changes. You do that, you know, a second year in a row, a third year, a fourth year. And that's where some of these farmers who have made this transition from the conventional system to a different kind of a system, which, you know, sort of currently we're calling something between, you know, regenerative or I would put the very best organic farmers in this category too. They figured this, they figured this out. And so they've gone from a dead soil to a living soil. And when you go from a dead to a living soil, your inputs, the need for the crutches and the virtual glasses and all of the all of the crap that keeps these crops propped up long enough to get to a finish line, you do away with all that stuff and the crop can march itself right to the finish line of harvest. And and these regenerative farmers, I will tell you this, they really like not spending money on inputs. Anyone out there likes not spending money on inputs and getting a better product by the end of it? I mean, how often does that happen? So, um, so that's, that's how you get them to change. And then just one other comment on this whole notion, too, of a system and the labels that we put on farmers and farming. I think it's, I understand why we want certified organic, because we need to know how our food is grown. And this book is making the point of how important it is what our food ate. So I, I thoroughly believe in and believe in the need for, you know, certification of, of practices, but I think it also keeps farmers locked in in some ways. And what you see these conventional farmers doing, who are stepping out of the conventional system, is um, they're starting, they're grabbing practices from all over, and they're adapting them to their crop, their farm, and their local conditions. And I almost think it's not it's not really worth asking. Oh, does that mean you're an organic farmer? No. The better question is, just tell me what you're doing for this outcome that we all want, that outcome being better soil health in the future, now and in the future. Whatever methods you're doing that by, however you're getting your dead soil back to life in in a sustainable way and in a way that is not some weird thing that often happens, you know, we're going to take this toxic thing and call it a nutrient. We're going to put it in the soil and, you know, look, no, 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 no real living soil. So that that's how they start to step out of these systems and begin changing their practices um, and helping themselves and helping the rest of us too, I think.
0: That's great, thank you. There's a question that's related to that, so I'll just answer it now. How do you respond to the criticism that you need high yield, let's go back to the yield question, to provide enough supply that you can't meet that demand with organic farming practices? or
1: um yeah well that's i wrote extensively about that in growing revolution and the regenerative farmers that i visited uh for that weren't technically organic farmers just just i think one was if i recall right um but they were what i called organic-ish farmers they had so weaned themselves off of 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 agrochemicals that they are hardly using any but their yields were comparable if not greater than their conventional neighbors so and if you actually go back, at, which we do in the new book and what's your food aid, and you look at some of the studies that have, are the root of the idea that organic yields are lower than conventional yields, uh, you know, on average, that is what you find when you do the sort of the meta studies of all the organic and all the conventional studies, put them in a, each one in their own little blender and compare the net yields. People argue there's, you know, a 10 to 20 percent yield gap but if you actually look and parse those studies and look at the study uh, and there's the one study looked at fully half of the comparisons the organic yields were as big if not higher than the conventional ones and the things that are usually left off the table in considering the yield gap and how what it might actually be is what's the state of the soil and there's plenty of uh, organic farms that have degraded their soil and there's plenty of those comparisons of organic versus conventional farms where they grow a conventional crop variety in a soil treated organically that had been conventionally farmed for 100 years and just converted. So the state of the soil was essentially conventional, but it was labeled organic in the comparison because it was treated organic that year. So much of the conventional wisdom about the difference between organic and conventional farming is sort of rooted in the premise that we're going to be growing food in degraded soil. And organic, cyst, organic crops and organic methods don't do really well in degraded soil. Why? Because they depend on soil life and soil health for much of the nutrient cycling that actually helps promote not only high yields, but nutrient density. Uh, and when you actually look, there's one study that looked at trying to, um, you know, how much could the yield gap be trimmed down? Uh, and they were getting down to like, you know, 3% kind of levels on, and again, on average but there's lots of comparisons where organic has outproduced conventional um, but it's just not the majority of comparisons the majority go the other way um, and so with we were finding there was hardly any yield gap between these um, regenerative farmers and their conventional neighbors and that the gap went the other way the regenerative ones were outproducing their conventional neighbors So I think, and of course there's a transition period in terms of if you have degraded soil, you're not gonna get comparable yields until you rebuild soil fertility. So I view the challenge not so much as the question of can organic or regenerative feed the world relative to conventional, as much as a question of how do we transition conventional farmers to organic and or uh, regenerative, more soil health building practices in a way that will allow us to keep feeding the, the world into the future. And it's about, you know, engineering resilience back into the agri- agricultural system.
2: Yeah, and I think the one thing I'd add to that, you know, so if we're talking about a yield gap, um, juxtapose that with the factoid that, you know, we seem to throw away somewhere between 30 and 40% of the food that's grown. So is there a yield gap or is there a waste problem? Uh, or y- yeah.
1: Well, it's, yeah. yeah, basically you could solve the yield gap problem by wasting less food.
2: Yeah. We could reduce our waste size, too. Yeah.
0: <laughs> it goes back to that quotation, you know, education is understanding all these relationships. And then it can get overwhelming to know which <laughs> one to start with, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah.
2: And then just one more thing on this, this yield issue. Um, You know, modern times, we're growing crops um, that are largely bred to be able to, you know, survive and grow and get to the harvest finish line in these pretty awful soils. And um, we, so these crops are essentially, they're bred to respond to inputs, to the agrochemicals and the fertilizers. But what about this? What if we bred crops so that we're enhancing... All of the different ways, all of the genes that code for signaling compounds that allow them to communicate with their microbiome. And, and you know, tee up all of the defensive stuff and the protective stuff that puts more nutrients into our food. And we just don't really look at plant breeding that way, unless it's usually it's usually some one-off thing like, um, uh, we need more vitamin A in rice, so let's tinker with the genes you know, around vitamin A instead of how about if we enhance and protect how plants are communicating with their microbiome so that we get this whole biological conversation and intelligence um, operating, functional, and resilient. And uh, th- that's what I would like to see personally.
0: Um, I'm also trying to read some of these questions to give a moment because <laughs> we're coming to the end of the hour. We could talk forever. There are a couple about specific practices. One was somebody who was asking about homemade biochar, and someone else wondered if you have recommendations for. I think this is for home gardeners, but or small farms, or where you point people. I'll point people to your book for a fantastic understanding of what's going on. And then you talk some about what to do about it, but I wonder if there's more farming. Yeah. I, yeah, I pioneered some, at the
2: time I didn't even think they, I I had no name for them. And I realized now, oh, maybe I was doing regenerative gardening before I knew (laughs) that that's what it, it, that it had a name. And so my method um, was um, economical. Uh, I thought it was pretty efficient. It took some, you know, took some muscle power, but wood chips. Okay. so. Um, we, We know all the soil life thrives on organic matter. That's either organic matter coming in the form of exudates of plants, or it's the physical organic matter that you're bringing either into your garden or you're letting plants in your garden or farm drop their dead parts, and then you're keeping that stuff on site. And so what I ended up doing early on when we put a garden in, we didn't have enough plants here to be generating their own organic matter. And so I became friends with arborists. And I liked arborists who had different loads of wood chips on their truck, they would dump them in the driveway and then I would take these wood chips, and I would mix them with other types of organic matter that I had on hand in an urban environment and so that was everything from you know neighbors dead leaves to um, we have um, zoo do which is animal manures from the zoo for the, the ornamental part of the garden. and. Um, someone had asked, I saw that you mentioned biochar. I got a hold of some biochar and I mixed that in. And basically, I'm I'm not like a perfect composter, but I do like to just always remember more carbon than nitrogen in your mulch mix. And I I wasn't setting this stuff off to compost and then applying it. I was sheet mulching on the beds and I was not digging it in. Initially, I thought I was going to do that. And there's like, wait a minute, that's nuts. There's no time. There's no labor. And so I just sheet mulch this stuff and it decomposed in place all the t- all the, the microbes and other forms of soil life helped decompose and break that down and I never looked back ever since and i've had. Um, virtually. It's not been disease and pathogens that have taken out any plants in the garden, what it has been is the gardener in one case, put too much mulch on too much mulch on the tree bad 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 so. Um, if you've got, you know, perennials, and I'm thinking, you know, maybe some people are growing herbs and things like that, it's just keeping an eye, thinking about your soil as having a metabolism. And so you don't really serve up a giant plate of mulch. You serve up a plate for that meal, and you keep your eye on it through the growing season. You apply more as needed. And the reason wood chips kind of the base for my mulch recipe is that this really gets the, the fungi going. I'm sure there's some people out there who have read Mer- Merlin Sheldrake's book, Entangled Fungi. And so if not, I, I recommend that fungi do all these amazing things. And they happen to really um, certain certain types of saprophytes, the decayers, really, really enjoy living on wood chips. And these are things that, you know, arborists, at least in the Seattle area, they either they're gonna to have to pay to go dump these. So you raise your hand and you are say, no, you come to my house and you leave them here and you know I'll, I'll take care of them.
0: Great, thank you. Um, there's a lot of questions and we're coming to the end, so we're not gonna have time. I, one, I don't know if, if you can answer this in one minute or two, but someone's asking about, going back to your points about resilience and how does one measure that in the plant, food, herbal health? Wow. Other ways to measure. And you can pass if you
2: can't get to that. <laughs> I think it's a great question.
1: Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I totally understand the question. Um, but in terms of if you're looking at sort of resilience in terms of human health, I'd be looking at, well, which herb, which phytochemicals and which herbs, and look at the density or the concentration of them in that. Um, in, in terms of resilience of actually growing things, you know, the, the best sort of, uh, sort of metrics for resilience and healthy soil that I can think of that are simple are just the soil organic matter content and something like a Haney test, a, a soil health test. Uh, they're, they're simple, they're, they're fairly cheap to do. Um, and the basic idea is that the higher you score on both for your, for the, your environment, the more resilient um your soil and whatever you're growing it is likely to be.
2: Yeah. The other thing I would say about that is I'm sure folks who are growers out there in your audience, they live somewhere. There's likely other farms or gardens around them and they they maybe know these people or friends with them. And there's always, this is what I love about farmers and gardeners. The first thing you talk about is what are you doing there? How come that looks so good? Or, hey, why is your plant dying? My plant's not dying. You need to be doing this or that. And so I love the peer-to-peer learning because chances are, at least you know, if you're in proximity, soils are you're starting with maybe the same kind of soil, and you can learn about what another person is doing to either battle a pathogen, a disease, you know, or get these plants just, you know, growing gangbusters and rambunctiously um, like you want. So I'm always one for uh on the ground learning from another another person it's really and most farmers are more than willing they do these they do farm schools so these are and i I don't know if the herbalists do this too but they in the summertime they frequently have like a several day farm school where you go to that farm and you learn all about their methods and what works
0: interesting Um, For for the last question this was partly a question but i'm also curious I had this question too about where you think it's overwhelming the amount of information and it's hopeful, but it's often the forces against it are making these changes from dead to living soil is overwhelming. And I wondered what each of you think, maybe starting with you, David, where we are on that journey toward moving to really.
1: Well, you know, when uh, when I wrote DIRT back in 2007, nobody was talking about soil health. It was kind of a crazy thing to be even bringing up, even in a book about soil <laughs> um, and, and its history. Um, and now uh, you go to farming conferences and, you know, the hot topics are soil health and what to do about it. And. Um, so I, I think we're on the sort of the, the, the we're still on the early adopter phase of sort of you know the big transitions of early adopters and then you get the the mean and then maybe you never get everybody at all you know at the the far end. Uh, but I think we're poised for a couple decades of growing adoption of the idea of, reg- of regenerative farming is not only good for the planet and but good for the farmer and also good for the consumers that are eating what the farmers grow. And what turned me into an optimism that we're going to see an an increasing acceleration of adoption of more regenerative style practices and and a gradual move, making conventional farming sort of closer to organic farming as a result of that. um, Is that it seems to be working out economically for farmers.
2: Yeah, and I'm drawing a little picture here that I'm going to show because um, I like to do that kind of thing. And um, so. There we are on the limb, the a, the so-called ascending limb. We're we're not at the beginning anymore with this soil health stuff. We're climbing up there. We're going to reach a plateau, and then we're going to go even higher. That's what I think is happening. And the time span, I don't know, the next decade, decade and a half or so. I mean, we need it, and the planet needs it. So I, I don't really see uh, how we're going to get around this. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Soil, soil life is where it's at.
0: It's fantastic. Thank you all so, so much um, for this conversation and for everybody who joined and the many questions that we didn't get to, I'm sorry. And I want to again, remind everyone we'll, um, to read this book. Somebody did ask which of your books to start with. Um, or what, <laughs> if they were gonna read one, which one? Oh yeah, I mean, you could start anywhere. I
2: mean, I'd say pick it up, open it up. If it grabs you, keep going. Um, there's not any right order, so to speak.
1: Yeah, if you're really interested in the history, dirt's a good place to start. If you're really interested in microbes and symbioses, hidden half of nature is a good place to start. If you wanna meet some interesting regenerative farmers around the world, growing revolution is a good place to start. But if you're just interested broadly in it and, and you're comfortable waiting until June, a few weeks until the, the new book is out, that's a great place to start too. Because we tried to synthesize what we did in the previous books. And then lay on the element of human health so what's your food aid is sort of the higher level look that has the benefit of all we learned along the way but if you read the books in the order we publish them you'll actually re-experience the intellectual journey that we were on in learning stuff because we never thought we never anticipated (laughs) writing more than one book on soil um and we're now on number four
0: yeah yeah so Thank you all so much. And we'll share the recording with everyone tomorrow and a link to where you can pre-order the book. All right, great. Yeah. Thanks, a, thanks a ton, Anne. It was really fun to be with you. Yes. Thank you all.